Happy Easter. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in two different passages of Scripture today. 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans chapter 3. All right, And if you did not get one of the handouts and you would like that to help you follow along, just raise your hand and Cynthia can get those to you. I need one up here, Cynthia. cannot think of any greater message to preach on an Easter Sunday than the gospel, the very good news that makes Easter what it is. And so uh, this is not something new to preach the gospel, especially to Christians. We're going to see here in 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul continually preached the gospel even to the churches because we have a tendency to forget We have a tendency to move away from the gospel and to move away from the good news and the finished work of Jesus and to try to earn God's favor on something we can do. And we always need to be reminded. And so we look at the gospel today for two main reasons. For one, to ensure that you yourselves have believed it, that you're actually trusting in Christ. What a tragedy it would be on Easter Sunday to walk away and not having faith in Jesus and his resurrection. But the second reason we want to talk about the gospel is we want to instruct and to teach and to equip you, the saints, to be able to share this gospel. It's one thing for me to say we need to go out to the community and share the message, but we can't assume that everybody knows what that message is. And so today, we need the gospel. So from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. Paul is writing to a church here, and this is what he says to the church. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if... There's a condition here. How do you know you're being saved by the gospel? If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So off the, right off the, from the very beginning, we realize that it's possible for you to believe the gospel in vain. It's possible for you to say that you believe the gospel and to say that you trust in Christ, and yet for you to actually not believe it, to believe it in vain if you don't hold fast. So what is this gospel? Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Many of those are still alive though some have fallen asleep. Today we ask that question, the all-important question, what is the gospel? Let's pray together. Father, this morning I say with the Apostle Paul that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
For the gospel has power to save everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. And so I pray that this morning, this message would not be with wise and persuasive words, but it would come with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that our faith this morning would not rest in the wisdom of a preacher, but in the power of Almighty God. Father, demonstrate your power today through the proclamation of the gospel. For those who have not believed it, I pray that you would bring them to salvation, that you would bring them to repentance and faith in your Son. And for those of us who do believe this gospel, Father, would you instruct us and teach us so that we can better proclaim it to those who have never heard. Father, I ask that you would speak now. Lord, speak, for your servants are listening. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. When we talk about the gospel, we're talking about good news. And so we need to understand what this good news is all about. And so when we talk, what, one of the things that I've realized in the church and my whole life is that we, Christians are very good at talking all about the gospel without actually explaining what the gospel is. And so we use this language If you've been in a church before, you've heard it, how we need to share the gospel. We need to believe the gospel. We need to preach the gospel. We need to live according to the gospel. And what's very easy to do is to talk all about the gospel and never ask the all-important question, what is the gospel? What is it that we say that we believe as a church? What is it that makes us Christians. And so, what does gospel mean? So if you're following along in your notes, the word gospel means good news. That's what the word gospel means. It means good news. It comes from a Greek word that means to proclaim good news to the people. It's the idea of a of a of a herald, a guy that comes announcing good news that the army has won the battle and that we are free and that we are not no longer in slavery. We're free and they're proclaiming good news. But in order for us to fully understand and appreciate the good news, you also have to know the bad news. Right? You got to know the bad news if you're going to really appreciate the good news. I've used this illustration before, but um, when I jingle my keys... Does it make you happy? If it does, you probably need to go see a counselor, right? Of course, it shouldn't make you happy for me to jingle keys, right? Because the keys don't mean anything to you. But now what if I told you that you were locked in a prison in a country controlled by terrorists and that you were going to be killed in the morning? And all of a sudden at midnight you hear the sound of keys And it's the sound of of someone coming with keys to let you out and to set you free. Would the keys make you happy then? Yes, right? Because now you know the bad news. If we don't appreciate the, the bad news, we'll never fully understand the good news of the gospel. And so before we answer the question, what is the good news? We need to ask another question. What is the bad news? Here's the bad news. God is good. You say, that doesn't sound very bad to me. 
God is good. That's the bad news this morning. And you say, what do you mean? Why, what do you mean? Why is that bad news? It's bad news because we are not good. And so what we're going to talk about today is how the gospel answers a big problem in the Bible. There is a big problem all throughout Scripture that the gospel is the answer to. We're going to be studying this through the next 16 weeks uh, in our series about the story of the Bible in 16 verses. Basically, the the story of the Bible begins and ends with a tree of life. You have a tree of life in the Garden of Eden... And when Adam and Eve sin, they're kicked out of the garden. And you get to the end of the story in the book of Revelation and you see God's people all around a tree of life. The question is, how did they get kicked out of the garden and allowed to come back into the tree of life? It's because of another tree of life. There's another tree of life that stands dead center in the middle of Scripture and it is a cross. It is a cross You see, the way that we are allowed to go back to the tree of life is because the Son of God climbed up the tree of death on our behalf. So that on Sunday morning, on Easter Sunday, the cross becomes a tree of life for all of us who believe the gospel. But how? So here's the big problem of Scripture. The great problem of Scripture is centered on one question. And here's the question. How... Can a holy and just God pardon the wicked? If God is so good and God is so holy, how can He forgive sinners? I want to say a statement that may sound scandalous at first, but it's true. If God is truly holy and God is truly just... He cannot forgive you of your sin. And you say, Josh, that doesn't seem very gospel-y to me. That doesn't sound like God. I thought God's loving and gracious. What do you mean God can't just forgive me of my sin? Here's what I mean. Proverbs chapter 17 verse 15 says this, and it's there in your notes. The judge or he who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. The judge who lets guilty people go free is a wicked judge. Let me give you the illustration. Let's say, and God forbid this happened, but imagine that you left your home today and you went for your Easter Sunday lunch. And then you got home and you found that your entire family had been murdered in cold blood. And you saw the man who did it. You you called 911 and the police came and they captured the guy who murdered your family, murdered your children. They capture him, they bring him to the courtroom and he stands before the judge and he confesses that he's guilty. And the judge looks at the man who murdered your family and says, Sir, you are guilty. But I am a loving and merciful judge. Therefore, you are free to go. What would you say about that judge? Would you be angry? Would you be upset? Of course you would, right? 
And if you're a righteous person, you would stand up in that moment and say, Judge, I demand justice. This man is guilty and deserving of death. So I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to say the answer out loud. Would you say that that judge is a good judge or a bad judge? Bad judge, right? Because he doesn't uphold justice. He justifies the wicked. And God says that that judge is an abomination to the Lord. I got another question. I want you to answer it out loud. Is God a good judge or a bad judge? Good judge. You see the problem. If God is a good judge and we have broken his laws and we have broken his commandments, how can God just simply look at us and say, you're free to go, I forgive you, and him still be a good, holy, just God? That is the problem of Scripture. That here's the God who speaks and light comes out of his mouth at 186,000 miles a second. This is the God who speaks and tells planets where to stand. He tells the earth where to revolve around the sun. He tells mountains be lifted up and they obey him. He tells valleys to be cast down and they obey him. And he tells animals where to graze. He tells birds where to fly and fish where to swim. And they all obey him. And everything in creation obeys the voice of its creator. And then God created you and me and he said, Come to me and worship and bow down and give me glory. And we all said, no. We all said, no God, I'm going to do it my way. We violated the holiness and the justice of this sovereign Lord who has all authority in heaven and earth. That is a big problem. And so this problem can be understood by two statements. Here's the, here's the, the problem of Scripture. If God simply forgives the wicked... He is no longer righteous. If God simply forgives our sins, He is no longer righteous. He is no longer a good God. Because He's violating His justice. The second problem is that if God does not forgive the wicked, then all of us will perish. If God doesn't forgive our sin, we all die. And if He does forgive our sin, then He is no longer the good and holy and righteous God that we worship. So how does God solve this big problem? And the answer is the gospel. The answer is the good news of Jesus. In verse 3, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance the most important message that I could give you that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day. And if you don't believe me, He appeared to Peter and the apostles and to 500 other people. Many of them are still alive. If you don't believe me and you don't believe the disciples, go and ask them. So there's witnesses to this death and resurrection. So what is it that God accomplished? What is the gospel? And so I've given you a summary there. There in your notes. If, if I was to summarize the gospel. And if you're looking for a way to just sum it all up. You say, if you had to sum it up in a tweet or two. Right? This is a little bit more than 140 characters. But two tweets and you can get this in. Okay? What is the gospel? Here it is. Every word is important. Every word is loaded with meaning. Here it is. 
the just and gracious God of the universe looked upon hopelessly sinful people and sent His Son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear His wrath against sin on the cross and to show His power over sin in the resurrection so that all who have faith in Him will be reconciled to God forever. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take every section of that passage and we're going to break it down and explain it. And so when we talk about the gospel, who does the gospel begin with? Believe it or not, the gospel does not begin with us. In fact, this is how we read the Bible, right? The, the Bible, you can either read it like a dog or a cat. Anybody own a, a dog? Who owns a dog in here? Raise your hand. All right. If you've ever fed a dog... You may have noticed this, that when you feed a dog, that dog treats you as if you're God, right? He eats his food and he comes back, licks your face, usually right after he's licked his backside, and he wants to lick your face because he loves you, right? And that dog will treat you as if you are God. Any cat owners in the house? Raise your hand. Cat owners, all right? I think cats are demon-possessed, to be honest. Um, I'm just kidding. I love cats. They taste great. Um, I'm just playing, just kidding. Anyways, y'all know this about cats though, right? You ever fed a cat? That cat will come up and sniff its food, and it might lick it a few times, but when it finishes eating, the cat will turn around and stick its tail up at you and walk away as if it is God, right? That's the big difference between a dog and a cat. Dogs think you're God, cats think that they are God, right? Here's the question. When you read the Bible, do you read it like a dog or a cat? Here's, here's how you read it like like a cat. A cat reads the Bible and the first question the cat asks is what does this say about me? What does this say for me? The dog reads the Bible and says what does this say about Jesus? And how does that inform how I think about me? So what we're doing in the next four months is we're going to learn to read the Bible like dogs, right? We're going to learn to see where is Jesus? How does Jesus fit in? What is God's story? What is God doing? So the gospel does not begin with us. And the gospel does not really begin with Jesus. We have to go to God the Father and His nature and His love for us, okay? So we start with this line, the just and gracious God of the universe. We have to start with the character of God in order to understand who we are and why Jesus had to come. So what do we know about God? Three things here that are important. First, God is creator. God is the one who speaks and creates. We are the creatures. God is the creator. And that is a special relationship that we have with our creator. He made us. He has authority over us. He speaks over us. He controls all things. He's the king. He's in charge. And so God is the creator and we are his creation. We are his creatures. And so that's the relationship. We are not God. God is. So God is creator, and secondly, God is just. He is a just God. And we've said this already, that God will not leave the guilty unpunished. When you read Exodus chapter 19, you see that God does not leave the guilty unpunished. He will not let sinners go free. Sin will never be swept under the rug by God. Because He's just, and He's a good judge. 
And he will always uphold justice. But the other thing we need to know about God is he's not just the creator. He's not just just. But he is gracious. This God that we serve, he is loving and he's gracious. And so he is extending mercy to us today. God did not do the, everything that he did for us in the cross because God needed something. God did everything he did for us in Christ, being totally self-sufficient in himself. He does not need our worship. He does not need our praise. He does not need our service. He did it to magnify his glory and his greatness and to show the glory of his grace. He, well, he said, what's the best way that I can demonstrate my grace, the glory of my grace to my people? And it was through the death of his son. It was by extending forgiveness of sins. And so God is both. He is just and he is gracious. But how? How can he do both? Take your Bibles and let's turn to Romans chapter 3. In the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 3. This is a passage you're probably familiar with. But hopefully you see it in a different light today. Romans chapter 3. I think we're going to start in verse 23. We're going to start in verse 21. Okay, Romans 3 verse 21. Paul writes this, but now the righteousness of God, in other words, the way to be right with God, the right standing with God has been revealed apart from the law. Even though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God now comes not through the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So in the Old Testament, the way that God's people would put themselves in right standing with God, the way that they would be made right was through sacrifices. And it was through keeping the law, through the covenants, through the promises that God had made with His people. And so they would try to uphold the law. The problem with the law is that they could never meet that standard. And so now God says there's another way to be made right with God. And it's not by keeping the rules. It's not by obeying the laws it's been revealed another way a new way to be made right with God and it's not by your works through the law but it's through faith faith in Jesus verse 23 y'all probably can quote this one without even looking at it for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God now here's the question don't turn to the next slide just leave it right there how many of you I'm not trying to brag or anything. How many of you have actually heard this verse or memorized it? You could quote this with your eyes closed. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. A lot of you, okay? Here's my question. Without looking, does anybody know what verse 24 says? Because verse 24 is the key to the gospel. The next three words in verse 24 are scandalous. Keep this in mind. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24. Let's flip to it. And are justified now we got a big problem right remember that wicked judge we talked about who's letting wicked people go free guess who that judge is now who's letting sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God go free it's God God is the one who is justifying sinners how they're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, 
whom God put forward. He put Jesus forward as a propitiation or an atoning sacrifice by His blood to be received by faith. And why did He do it? This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. And it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So now Jesus comes, takes the wrath of God that was set aside for us, takes it upon himself so that now God's wrath is satisfied, his justice is satisfied, and there's no longer any penalty for us anymore so that God can justly look at us by faith in Jesus and say, not guilty. And now he is just because he has punished sin and he's the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus because he's merciful and gracious and he's allowed a sacrifice to take our place. This is the good news of the gospel. That Christ suffered for our sins. And now those who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God can now be justified by his grace. God offers grace now because he's offered a sacrifice in your place. And so the just and gracious God of the universe looked upon hopelessly sinful people. Verse 23 says, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What does that mean? It means a few things. First, it means we have rebelled against God. That's the first thing there in your notes. We have rebelled against God. We use that language at our church that we were part of the rebellion. That we were part of the rebellion in the garden. Adam and Eve rebelled against God and Adam was our perfect representative. He was the best we had to offer. So don't think this morning for a minute that if you and your, your wife were there in the garden that you would have done any different than Adam and Eve. Because Adam was perfect and he was the best we had to offer and Adam and Eve were still deceived and fell into sin. He was our representative, and we all rebelled in Adam. We're guilty. We've all rebelled against him. We have all gone astray. All we like sheep have gone astray. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we have rebelled against God, and that means, secondly, we are separated from God. We're separated from him. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let me give you an illustration of what it means to fall short of the glory of God and how none of us can really boast about how good we are, all right? I want you to imagine that, that I'm standing at the cliff of the Grand Canyon, all right? I've been to the Grand Canyon. It's grand, okay? It's big. I've stood right there, and, and next to me is Usain Bolt, the fastest man who's ever lived, okay? Really fast guy. World record speeds, right? And we both decide that we are going to jump across the Grand Canyon. And, and so I, get, I go first, and I get a running head start, and I'm fairly athletic. And I take a jump, and I jump, give me at least 10 feet, okay? 10 feet before I start going down, okay? 10 feet. And you can imagine you're looking at the Grand Canyon sideways, and you see me, little old me, way over here. And I jump as far as I can, and I start going down to the bottom of the canyon. And you say, man, he fell short. Way short. And then Usain Bolt comes around. And he's fast, y'all. Like, twice as fast as me. Probably runs 20 to 25 miles an hour, top speed. That's pretty fast for a human being. 
And he gets a running head start. And he jumps as far as he can. And let's just say, I jumped 10 feet. Let's give him 30 feet. That's a long way. 30 feet. And then he starts going down to the bottom of the cliff. All right, imagine him. He jumps a little bit further than me. And and now, now he gets to the bottom of the cliff. And let's say that we miraculously survive this thing, okay? And we're brushing ourselves off at the bottom of the canyon. And he looks at me and he says, man, I jumped a lot further than you. Look how much better I am than you are. See how much farther I jumped than you, Josh? But when you look at it in, in, in comparison to this canyon, we both fell so far short of the other side that no one could boast about jumping a few feet further than someone else. That's like you and me looking and saying, well, I'm a little bit better than them, and I'm a little bit better than them, but the problem is we're all trying to jump over the Grand Canyon, and we all fall exceedingly short of the glory of God. We'll never get there. Never be able to jump the chasm. Ever. And so because of that, we are separated from God. Our rebellion has created a chasm that we will never be able to cross, ever. No matter how long we train, no matter how far we jump, no matter how far of a running head start we get, we'll always fall short of the glory of God. And because of that, because of our attempts to jump into the Grand Canyon, we don't survive because we are all dead without God. We have rebelled against God, we are separated from God, and we are dead without Him. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are dead. Our rebellion has caused spiritual deadness so that our eyes can't see, our hearts can't feel, our, our hands do not obey, our ears can't hear. Everything is dead. Everything. And so what we need is not to somehow conjure something up in ourselves to wake ourselves up because we're dead. The picture of Scripture and salvation is not that you are swimming out in the middle of the ocean waving your hand and yelling for a lifeboat. The picture of Scripture is that we have sunk to the bottom dead seven miles under the sea and we will never wake ourselves up and what we need is the good old gospel ship to come by and Jesus in His mercy not to wait on us to come to Him but He came to us and He reached all the way down and He didn't wait for a response. He took our dead heart of stone and He transplanted it with a heart of flesh and He breathed life into us and He put his spirit in us and he sprinkled clean water on us and he cleansed us from our impurities and he made us right and he resurrected us and made us spiritually alive so Ephesians 2 verse 4 says while you were dead in your sins God made you alive because he's rich in mercy this is God's work God is doing this we are totally unable to save ourselves this is why Jonah said salvation is of the Lord This is why Jesus said that no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The flesh is no good at all. It is the Spirit who gives life. So God looked upon hopelessly sinful people. We were hopeless, having no hope. And what did He do for us? He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear His wrath against sin on the cross and to show His power over sin in the resurrection. The Old Testament law, God did not just simply throw away. It still had to be fulfilled. 
And the good news is that you would never be able to fulfill that law. Jesus came in our place. He not only died in your place. Don't miss this three rivers. Jesus also lived in your place. And fulfilled all the righteous demands of the law. So that you don't have to fulfill it. It's not that he just took my place on the cross and died for me. It's that he came and lived the life I could never live. And obtained the righteousness I could never get. And in faith I get his righteousness and he takes my sin. That's why God the Father looks at us and says not guilty. Perfect. Righteous. It's because you're not living in your own righteousness. You're living in the righteousness of another. It's like walking into a chemical plant, into a lab. They're not going to let you in there unless you put on the hazmat suit, right? you got to put a suit on. You don't just walk in there with your own impurities. And so what we do to get into the kingdom, we need someone else's righteousness. We put on the hazmat suit of Jesus' righteousness and we walk into heaven pure and clean. So, Jesus' life displayed the righteousness of God. It was important that Jesus came not just to die in our place, but to live in our place. He lived and displayed what it meant to be righteous. What does it mean to be perfect? What does it really mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself? I have news for you, church. None of us have loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And none of us has loved our neighbors as ourselves. There's been only one who has done that, and his name was Jesus, and that's why he's the Savior. He perfectly fulfilled God's law and his righteousness. So his life displayed the righteousness of God, and then he died. His death satisfied the wrath of God. Jesus' death satisfied the wrath of God. Remember that prayer Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? He said, Father, let this bitter cup pass from me. And the question we all need to be able to answer if we understand the gospel is, what was in that cup? What was in the cup that was so bad that the Son of God did not want to drink it? And we can't say that it was sin. Although Jesus came to die for our sins, it wasn't sin that was in that cup. And it wasn't physical suffering. As much as Mel Gibson could portray the physicality and the brutality of the cross in his movie, he would never actually show us what saved us on that cross. The captain of our salvation was not afraid of a Roman cross when church history tells us that thousands of Christians in church history gladly went to those same Roman crosses, many of them being hung upside down and burned alive while they sang hymns of praise to God, thanking Him for being counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the gospel. So if that's true, that means Jesus wasn't just afraid of the physical side of suffering. What was in that cup that was so bad, Jesus didn't want to drink it? And the answer is in Jeremiah 25, 15. It was the cup of the wine of the wrath of God. It was God's wrath against sin that Jesus himself wanted to avoid. And said, Father, if there's any other way for, for us to save humanity apart from drinking this bitter cup, apart from you pouring your wrath out on me, then, then do it. But, Father, nevertheless, not your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. 
And here's the good news, church. In that bitter cup was the wrath of God. And if your faith is in Jesus Christ this morning, Jesus has drank every bitter cup, every drop of that bitter cup on your behalf. So that on the cross, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for us. The best story I know how to tell about this is is a story in the 1980s when an airplane was flying over the northern part of the United States. And the, the plane had engine trouble and it went down and crashed out in the field. There were 153 passengers on that airplane. And out of 153 passengers, 152 of them died. There was one survivor, and it was a four-year-old girl. A four-year-old girl named Cecilia. And when the rescue team got to the plane, they could not believe that this girl had survived the crash. And when she finally settled down, they, they asked her, they said, Sweetie, how in the world did you survive this crash? And that little girl explained this. She said, when the plane started to go down, my mommy unbuckled her seatbelt, got down on her knees in front of me, and gave me a big hug. And when the plane hit the ground, they realized that that mother, out of love for her daughter, had become a human airbag. And absorbed the full shock of that plane crash, the mother died instantly on impact, and the daughter walked away without a scratch. And this is the glory of what we just sang in Christ alone. That second verse. In Christ alone who took on flesh. The fullness of God in a helpless babe. This gift of love and righteousness was scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross as Jesus died the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Jesus, on that cross, though we had been separated from God, could never get back to God. God the Father, out of love for us and out of, his, out of love for himself and his, and his justice, sends his son to step in our place, to drink the bitter cup, to absorb the full shock of the wrath of God so that you and I, by faith, can walk away without a scratch this morning. This is the good news of the gospel that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God for us on our behalf. His life displayed God's righteousness. His death satisfied God's wrath. And Jesus' resurrection demonstrated the power of God. It demonstrated God's power over sin. When Jesus rose from the dead, it demonstrated His power over death. It demonstrated His power over sin. The best illustration I can give here is that when Jesus died, He said, It is finished got some accountants in the room that's an accounting term to say that the the debt has been paid the question is how do you know that it's been paid and the way you know that the debt has been paid for your sin and look at that empty tomb and here's how you know the check cleared the tomb is empty by the empty tomb we know that the check in heaven cleared and the payment went through and it was truly finished for us. The resurrection, as Justin said earlier, validates everything Jesus said in his life. That the Son of Man will suffer. It is appointed for the man to suffer once for sin. And three days later, he will rise. And so what does this mean for us? Romans 3 verse 24 says that we are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And so here's the gospel. God sent His Son, Jesus, in the flesh to bear His wrath against sin on the cross, to show His power over sin in the resurrection. Why? 
so that all who have faith in him will be reconciled to God. God was reconciling us together. He was bringing us back to the tree of life through the cross. And here's what that means for us. These are good things to know. First, God is the giver of the gospel. It's out of his mercy, out of his love, out of his grace that he gives us Christ. He gives us the good news. God is the one to be praised this morning. God is the one to be worshipped because it was all his idea and he has accomplished everything on our behalf. He is the giver of the gospel. Second, and this is really important, God is the gift of the gospel. What is Jesus offering to you this morning through the gospel? He's offering himself. So I want to ask you a question. Because I think the church has gotten this wrong a lot. We see it in in a lot of our songs that we sing. A lot of songs are all about streets of gold, going to heaven through pearly gates, having my mansion in the sky, and sitting down with mama when I get there. I want to ask you a question. If you knew that when you got to heaven... That there would be streets of gold. That there would be pearly gates. You would get your own mansion. And you could live with mama forever. But Jesus wasn't going to be there. Would you still want to go to heaven? And if you answer yes to that question. You may not be converted. You may not have truly. Believed the gospel. Because Jesus is the treasure in the field. That is worthy of selling everything else that we have. Just to get him. You know what? I would would gladly go to heaven if Jesus was there and there were no streets of gold and there were no pearly gates and we'll we'll, we'll let mama come. Mama's still there and you don't even get a mansion, right? Just you, Jesus, and mama, right? I I couldn't let my mama go to hell right there. (laughs) You, Jesus, and mama and that's it. Would you be satisfied? Yes. I love my mama but Jesus, yes, I get Jesus. He's the gift this morning. Do you treasure Him? Do you want Christ? Let's let's not even be confused. Let's not talk gospel, gospel, gospel and miss Jesus. Jesus is the treasure. He's the one that we're seeking. He's the one that we're after. He's the one that we worship. He's the treasure. So I want to ask you, have you received Jesus not just as Savior, not just as Lord, but do you receive Jesus this morning as your treasure? Is he your treasure? God is the gift of the gospel. And finally, God is the goal of the gospel. The gospel is not for our sake entirely. It is ultimately for God's sake. The gospel makes God look great. It makes his grace look good. It's all about God so that when we get to heaven and we start singing around the throne room about this lamb that was slain, we're not looking at each other saying, wow, I'm great. glad you believe the gospel. And look at you. I'm glad you're here. And I don't know how you got here, but that's great. Hey, here you are. That's not what it's about, right? We're going to be singing worthy is the lamb who was slain for us and all glory and power and majesty majesty and might be unto the Lamb forever and ever and ever and ever. It's all about God demonstrating the glory of His grace. God sent His Son so that all who have faith in Him would be reconciled to God forever. This is is eternal. And so there's a risk. Here's the risk. Three rivers. 
the risk is we can know all of these truths that I just shared and still not be saved. Did you know that you could sit here and believe everything that I just said and still not be saved? This is eternally important. There are eternal implications for how we respond to Jesus. So what's the reality? The risk is we can know all these truths and still not be saved. What is the reality? The reality is our eternal destiny hinges on a biblical response to the gospel. I I emphasize biblical here because for a long time the church has called people to a very unbiblical response. What do I mean by that? We've grown up in the post-Christian South Where the way that you become a Christian is you bow your head, you close your eyes, and you ask Jesus to come into your heart. And I mean this with all sincerity. Jesus nowhere in the gospel says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the time has now come. Now if you'll just come down here and ask me into your heart, I'll save you. Jesus never says that. And we have created a superstitious sinner's prayer to try to make people feel better that if you'll just repeat these words, then you're you're right with God. And it doesn't matter if there's even a heart change on the inside. And so here's where I want to be careful. There are probably many of you in here who would say that you became a Christian Because you did pray some type of prayer. You asked Christ to save you. You may have used that language of Jesus coming into your heart. Does that mean you're not a Christian? No. It may just mean that Jesus saved you in spite of those things. Not because of those things. The question we need to ask this morning is. What is the biblical response to the gospel? How do you know if you've been converted? How do you know if you have truly responded rightly? We need to use biblical language, church. So what is the biblical language? Two words that Jesus uses in Mark chapter 1. The time has come, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now repent and believe the gospel. Two words, repent and believe. Repentance and faith, right? And this is all one action. It's turning away from sin and it's turning to Christ, right? So repentance and faith. And the evidence that you've been converted is not that you done did that a long time ago when you were six years old at vacation Bible school, but that right now you're repenting. Even now your faith is in Jesus. You're still repenting. It's ongoing. Your faith is still in Christ. And so what is the response this morning? How should we respond? Repent and believe. And so what is repentance? This, this all has to do with our faith, all right? Repentance. When you repent, this involves turning. Faith in Jesus involves turning. This is repentance. When you turn, you're turning from something. What is it that you turn from? Repentance is turning from our sin. A hatred for the things that God hates. And turning to the things that God loves. So repentance from our sins. And repentance means turning from ourselves. It means turning away from yourself as if you are your own savior. As if your own good works are going to make you right with God. Who are you trusting in today? 
Do you believe that the way you get right with God is because you obey the rules and you keep the law and you be a good person? If you think those things, then you are your Savior and you need to repent and turn away from yourself. Or do you believe that Jesus alone can save you from the wrath to come based on His finished work on the cross? So repentance means turning from your sin and turning from yourselves. Trying to establish your own righteousness, your own morality. Trying to make yourself feel better about your relationship with God because you achieve some measure of righteousness today. That's like Usain Bolt looking over at me and bragging about how far he jumped when the bridge was right next to him. And all he had to do was walk across. You don't take credit for building the bridge. So faith involves turning, repentance. But there's another word we need to think about, and that's faith. Belief. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. So faith involves turning, but faith also involves trusting. Repentance is turning. Faith is trusting. When you turn away from one thing, you turn away from yourselves, you have to turn to something else. Some people turn to substance, some people turn to religion, some people turn to whatever. You've got to turn to something or someone. And so by faith, we turn to Jesus. Faith involves trusting. We trust in Jesus. And what do we trust about Him? We trust in Jesus as Lord. He's the boss. He's the king. Jesus is Lord. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. And so we believe in Jesus. We trust in Jesus as Lord. And we trust in Jesus as Savior. He's the Savior. He's the one who saves us. Christ and Christ alone. And so I would ask you this morning. Who is your faith in today? Is it in your ability to perform? And what I want you to do is I want you to turn all hope within yourself. Turn it away. And turn it to Christ. This is the gospel. This is the good news that we believe. That Christ was, was lived and, was, was, and died and was buried and was raised on our behalf. So that all who have faith in Jesus will be reconciled to God forever with eternal joy. This is why we worship. This is why we sing. And this is the message that we proclaim to the nations. Let's pray together. Father, this message is powerful. It's not powerful because of my ability to explain it. It's powerful because this is the message you have chosen by your Holy Spirit to empower, to save others when they hear it. The Word says that faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of Christ. And so I pray that you would create faith today. That you would bring people to repentance and faith after they've heard the gospel. If there's anyone here who's never trusted in Christ, Father, would you be merciful today and awaken them and call them to repentance and faith so that they might be saved. But Father, for many in this room who are Christians, we need to be awakened to what you have done for us. This is a message that deserves to be preached and proclaimed and shared with our lost friends. It's a message that is worthy of singing about. And so, Father, would you empower us now to sing because you deserve it for the praise of your glorious grace. And, Father, would you empower us to share it with others, to share it with those 
in our families, in our communities, in our workplaces who have never heard it. Help us today to treasure Jesus above all things. And may the treasure in our hearts overflow from our mouths in praise. In Jesus' name, amen.